This week on the podcast, I have an extra special guest. Andy Nairn is the founding partner of Lucky Generals. They have been campaign's agency of the year five years in a row and have created some iconic advertising for the likes of Hovis, Amazon, Yorkshire Tea. Just go down the list of some of the most iconic brands around. He's won a ton of IPA Effectiveness Awards, 24 to be exact, and that's more than any other planner in the UK. He's one of the top five creative people in the world. He has a new book out called Go Luck Yourself. We talk about so much from the sources of good fortune that brands are likely to overlook, the luck that he had in his early career. We talked about how to use where you're from as an advantage, regardless of where it is you're from, how to cross-pollinate ideas from one field to the next. We talk about so much. He's just a fascinating, insightful, super smart planner who is a legend in the world of advertising and media. So I'm just going to stop talking now and just say, without me keeping you in suspense any further, my conversation with Andy Nen. Andy Nen is the founding partner at Lucky Generals, one of the most awarded and revered ad agencies in the world. Campaign Magazine has named him the number one planner in the UK and one of the top 10 in the world. He has won more IPA effectiveness awards than any other planner, including 2005, 2007, and a Grand Prix in 2010. The IPA has named him one of the inaugural members of their Effectiveness Hall of Fame. And Andy has created impactful work for the likes of AMV, DDBO, and YNR, just to name a few. Clients include Amazon, Yorkshire Tea, Zoopla, Co-op, just go down the list of some of the biggest brands in the world. His new book, Go Luck Yourself, 40 Ways Brands Can Stack Luck in Their Favor, is a fantastic book, which we will discuss today. Andy Nairn, welcome to Agency Dealmasters. Thank you very much for having me on. feel very lucky to be here. <laughs> to, the, to the title of your book, which we'll talk about in a lot more detail as we continue. It's an absolutely fascinating book, and I couldn't put it down for days. It took me a longer time to read than, than what it normally does. Let's start with talking about your background and history. As you said, like luck has played a huge role in your life and success today. You graduated with a first-class honours degree in law from the University of Edinburgh. Tell us how you made the switch from law to marketing and what kind of role did luck play along the way? Oh, that was a funny thing. Um, so I, I really enjoyed law and doing my course. And I liked the fact that you could sort of, you know, assemble all the facts and put them together in a way that was kind of persuasive for a client. It's kind of putting a story together, um, which I guess is what I've ended up doing now. But I told my lecturer at the time that I didn't really see myself doing a very corporate job. I was looking for something more creative. And he said, well, if you like that aspect of law, but you want to do it in a more creative setting, how about advertising? And um, I'd never even thought about that um, or knew anything about it. So I, I did a bit of investigation into that. And that was that was me on that path. And what's funny is that that lecturer turned out to be a guy called Alexander McCall Smith, who's gone on to write tens of millions or sell tens of millions of books, um, you know, many more books than I'll be selling, I'm sure. Um, but he so he is kind of like he took his own um, advice. I think he went off to do something more creative as well. And, and what a lucky break in your career, actually, because your mentor, essentially one of the first 
people that were quite influential in your life was the Alexander McCall Smith, who, you know, I still have his book on my bookshelf today, the number one ladies detective agency, which is a, a amazing book. Yeah. That's a huge amount of luck to have at quite an influential kind of moldable time in your life and career. Yeah, definitely. It was, it was very fortunate because as I say, I mean, I'd literally no interest or connections with advertising, didn't have any family ties to it. It felt very far away. You know, I grew up in quite a small little village in, in the south of Scotland that was, you know, very far away from the, the bright lights of Soho. Um, but sometimes you just need someone to plant a thought like that. And then it's up to you to sort of investigate it and, you know, do something with it. This is what I did. Hmm. Let's talk about Lucky Generals, the agency that you co-founded with Helen Calcraft and Danny Brooke-Taylor. You all had spells at MCBD and DARE, I I think. Mm -hmm. Tell us the founding story of the agency, what brought the three of you together, and then talk us through the most significant milestones along the way from when you sort of founded the business in, in 2013. So we were, the important thing is really we were we're all friends. We were working together and had worked together for quite a number of years before we set up Lucky Generals. I mean, I've known Helen for like 25 years or something like that, and I've worked with her nonstop for 20 years. So we can kind of finish each other's sentences. And Danny, we've, we then started working with and have worked with nonstop for the last, I guess, maybe 13 years. So we'd, we'd sort of established ourselves as um, an agency that Helen had set up called MCBD, and uh, we were getting on really well, doing lots of really great work together. We were really thriving. Um, and then once uh, we had sold that agency, we were sort of working in a slightly different format. We did a merger with a company called Dare, as you said, um, but we, we we weren't necessarily enjoying that. And we were we were thinking about how could we you know get the band back together again and do something uh, on on our own steam. So we we sort of held hands and said, let's do a startup and. Uh, that was back in 2013 mm-hmm. and it was a lovely feeling because we deliberately set up without any clients or people you know we didn't take anybody with us we wanted to do it you know with a blank sheet of paper and that was a you know a bit scary at first you know you, you open up an office and you have no business no money no clients no revenue and nothing um and uh, but it turned out to be a, a lovely sort of pure way to, to start it up and eventually of course the phone started to ring and every single client has, um, you know, brought something new and fresh and interesting to us. So mm. I guess landmarks were, you know, winning, winning our first bit of business was a, a campaign against homophobia in football called Rainbow Laces. Mm. So that that sort of I think showed the sort of modern, interesting cultural things that we could do. And then winning Amazon was a huge landmark for us. Massive, obviously. Mm. You know, winning the co-op Yorkshire Tea. Um, but you know, we we continue to grow. And evolve, you know, just just the other week we won Virgin Atlantic and Ovo, the energy brand, on the same day, amazing. Uh, which was an amazing day. Um, so, uh, yeah, we're not done yet. Tell us what brands or clients are buying when they work with Lucky Generals. You know, what what is your superpower as an agency? What really makes you different and stand out from other creative shops? So we talk about ourselves being a creative company for people on a mission. So we work really well with companies that are really driven to do something. You know, they've got a really strong purpose or they they might not have a mission at the moment, but they know that they need one. We don't really work so well with people who just want to sort of you know grow the business by a couple of percentage points, you know, keep their heads down, be a bit incremental. But 
you know, the, the businesses I've just talked about there are all quite bold and inspirational sort of mission-driven businesses. Mm. And so that's who we seem to get along with. Really fascinating. And you you bring that to life with the stories that you tell in your book, Go Luck Yourself. There are 40 stories that you tell of sort of brands that have really turned unlucky situations or what people would class as unluck into uh, luck mm. and into actually sort of the, the most fortunate situations for their for their organizations. Let's talk about the book in, in a lot more detail because from my point of view, the book is quite, it's actually about stoic philosophy for me mm. <laughs> and the whole idea of sort of turning any challenge that you have into an opportunity, which is essentially what stoicism is about, right? Mm. Going back thousands of years, Marcus Aurelius and, um, you know, go down the list of, of the early Stoics, mm -hmm. etc. So to me, it's about turning any kind of negative event or any negative experience into your greatest triumph. And you, you succeed not only in spite of those things, but actually because of those things, you actually turn them into huge opportunities for you. Gandhi, Martin Luther King, uh, Marcus Aurelius have used, uh, you know, Stoic philosophy in, in the things that they've achieved. What are the sources of good fortune that brands tend to overlook and then tell us in that context why you why you chose to write the book in the first place so brands tend to overlook all sorts of things in particular when they're things that are familiar to them so it's a bit like you know all human beings and none of us ever really think about our own name do we um or we don't think about the place that we're from because that's just the place that we grew up and sometimes it takes someone else from outside of town to come in and say wow this is the place that you're from or uh, wow you've got an interesting name um, or I love this particular feature of you but we're, the things that we're so familiar with we don't really think about so um, I think that also applies to organizations so very often organizations don't think about their own brand name or they're just over familiar with their own logo which they walk past in the corridor you know a thousand times a day or they don't think about the place that they're from. So all of those assets really can be worth millions and millions of pounds. And yet, you know, sometimes companies don't stop and just appreciate how lucky they are to have some of these things at their disposal. So, so it's about just trying to, you know, get organizations to appreciate and, you know, be grateful, frankly, for some of the things that they have at their disposal. And I suppose the reason I wrote the book was, I found myself thinking a lot about luck over the last year or so. I guess a lot of us have been doing that, probably thinking about how unlucky we all are because <laughs> we've been grappling with this pandemic and all these other big social problems. And then I sort of also started thinking about how lucky I was in another way, though, because despite all those difficulties, you know, I've got a lot of benefits because I'm an older, white, straight bloke. Um, so that gives me certain sort of privileges. And and, and I, I just feel like it's a really helpful attitude to life you know and you're right it's you know the great philosophers have often told us to do this is to just take a moment and appreciate what you've got and to think how lucky you are rather than to dwell on you know the the negatives and the, the difficult stuff mm, really interesting another part of the book that you talk about i think it's uh, in chapter or part three is where I think it was the emperor of Rome at the time. Was it one of the one of the Caesars? He hired someone to be with him in his chariot wherever he went to kind of bring him back to down to earth, right? Mm. To kind of tell him, "Hey, you're just a normal person at the end mm. of the day, and you're just, um, you know, don't take yourself too seriously." And that 
idea is, is I guess it's as old as the Stoics, um, mm. uh, you know, the early philosophers. It's about really sort of appreciating who you are, what you have, being humble. Talk about that in the context of, of luck. So, yeah, I, I feel like that's a really helpful way. So, as you say, the slave was employed to whisper in Caesar's ear, you know, remember you are human, um, you know, as he was parading through the streets, getting all the, you know, um, praise lavished on him. And I, I think, you know, businesses could do with a little bit of that. You know, the thing that makes big businesses go bust is when they get complacent and they drink the Kool-Aid and they get too fond of their own all their praise and they think that they're you know just going to continue forever and then fate catches up with them and so I think it's much more helpful to if businesses and organizations practice gratitude and are really conscious that they've succeeded you know yes due to their own amazing talents and strengths and hard work and all the rest of it but also that they've enjoyed a little bit of luck along the way then that that helps them against complacency Mm. because when you realize that you've been lucky you you treasure and are, are really sort of uh, appreciative of the things that you've got you where you got to. Whereas if you just think it was all down to your own brilliance, you are prone to being caught out. Definitely, definitely. And we've seen throughout history, the pride comes before the fall. Yeah. It's usually the fall, fall not, too, not too far away. So tell us the story then of how you won Yorkshire Tea and, and how you can use the associations of the place where you're from, as you were saying earlier, as an asset for your brand, where seemingly a lot of other people would historically think that there's no value in the mundane uh, sort of place where they're from. Tell us about that story. Yes, Yorkshire Tea was a good example. We stumbled on an idea for Yorkshire Tea. It was, we were walking around um, their factory up in Harrogate and there was a sign on the wall saying something like... Um, uh, we do things proper. And we sort of, you know, they've probably walked past that many, many times. We we liked the sound of that because it, it was a good statement of how, you know, they were into quality um, and and also sounded quite nice in Yorkshire, you know, because it's using a, a, a phrase proper, which we sort of associate with that part of the country. Mm. But what we also sort of thought was um, two things. One, people are probably not going to be all that interested if we just tell them about um, how proper the tea process is because it's it's you know there's only so much information that we want to know about that sort of stuff um but we we did think it's kind of interesting well if they make the you know they do everything else proper around this factory um you know from the way they answer the phones to you know the music that they put on you know the call holding music um or the way they do interviews if they basically do everything proper then that's that's potentially quite interesting and fun Mm. and people will take out of that Oh, well, they probably make really, if they spend that much time on those details, just think how much um, quality they must put into the tea. Um, mm-hmm. So we thought there's kind of an interesting idea there. In, and we changed the line to where everything's done proper. So the whole idea now is about, you know, Michael Parkinson, who's this kind of Yorkshire legend, uh, does the, the interviewing. Sean Bean does the um, sort of pep talk, you know, the rally, Dynamo stacks the shelves, you know, the magician, sure. all these Yorkshire people. And what we found was that these, and this is a good example of how provenance can be a really helpful thing, where we're, we weren't just applying or appealing to the, you know, people of Yorkshire. Um, I mean, that's That would obviously be limiting, but we were sort of treating place as a sort of point of view as an attitude you know there's a sort of a spirit to Yorkshire beyond just the actual literal place which is about being down to earth and uh, sort of honest and telling it how it is Mm. and you know that that's a spirit that we can all 
uh, aspire to and it appeals to lots of us, not just people in Yorkshire. And I think that's a trick. So sometimes um, companies are worried about talking about where they're from because they think, well, that will mean that I, I don't want to be pigeonholed as um, mm. just being for that part of the country. But if you're called Yorkshire Tea, you might as well embrace it and really dial up the Yorkshire spirit and just do so in a way that appeals to lots of people. And that's what we did. Amazing. And and subsequently, they became the biggest selling tea brand in the UK yeah. uh, in three years time. Amazing results yeah. that you've generated for them. Truly phenomenal. And I, I, actually, what, what was lovely was that the place that it grew fastest was Lancashire. And, and if you know anything about the north and the rivalry between Yorkshire and Lancashire, you'll know that um, for a tea brand to kind of uh, called Yorkshire tea to sell well in Lancashire, they must be doing something uh, special. Amazing, amazing. There's another story that you tell in the book actually about place, but the use of humour. So I think there's a there's a town in England called Dull, mm. um, and you visited the town, but then you realised that they they intentionally had an association with other cities around the world that also had equally boring names. I think there was a town called Boring. A, a place called, I don't know, uninspiring. I'm making it up yeah, now. Bland, I think it was called. Bland yeah. was another mm-hmm. one. Talk about that. Tell us, you know, because for a lot of marketers, they don't like using humor. You know, maybe it, it'll be mixed, misconstrued or not used in the right sort of way. How could you use humor and your name properly in a way to sort of incite humor and, and um, levity? Well, um, it's been very well established that humor is a really powerful way to. Um, you know, to drive effectiveness because we, you know, we, 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 all of us, it's a basic human trait, isn't it? We like to laugh. And what's interesting is that brands, when they laugh at themselves, that also endears them to us because, again, we, you know, like people who laugh at themselves, it's called something called the pratfall effect, uh, whereby we, we sort of like people who are not so perfect. Mm. You know, if you see someone who's just banging on about how brilliant they are and how wonderful they are, uh, which is how a lot of advertisers talk to us, isn't it? As you know, mm. as viewers, we don't really like them because it just sounds like they're boasting. Whereas if someone says something really impressive and you know uh, uh, does something really good, but also has a little bit of a laugh about themselves, you kind of think, ah, oh, okay, they're human and they're not too full of themselves. And and then I appreciate all this, the good stuff that they can do, um, and we we like them more for that. So I think a lot of a lot of uh, smart campaigns play off that a little bit. Mm. They they you know the bigger the company, the more we like it if they if they just uh, show that they've got a bit of humanity. And you know just just related to that, I was I was rereading the book the other day, Influence, Robert Cialdini's book, and mm. he he's got a really interesting idea in there around you know, those people who, or those businesses that are self-deprecating and tell you something about themselves, which is honest, are actually more trusted. Because when you when you then say as a brand, if you tell people everything about yourself, what, what's and all, and then you subsequently say something good about yourself, people are more likely to believe that because you've already said something bad about you, about yourself. Does that in somehow relate to sort of what you're talking about? Yeah, very much. And, and again, that's, you know, a, a classic, you know, good salesperson will know that um, by acknowledging something, you know, if you know that your prospect has got a worry or perhaps um, your product isn't as good in one particular dimension as the others, 
you're sort of much better to acknowledge it yourself so that you can deal with it rather than just pretend it's you know you know let's not mention it sort of thing yeah. because that's that's where the doubts grow is if you acknowledge it and say look i know that this isn't so good but um you know here's why um that doesn't matter or or what's really clever if you can take something that sounds like a negative and turn it into a positive um, then that can be a really, really good tactic. If you look at the, one of those great campaigns, you know, for Guinness, um, which is, um, you know, good things come to those who wait. I mean, that's brilliant because it takes something that is a bit of a pain in the neck, the idea that the pint takes ages to pour. Yeah. But it turns it on its head and said, you know, no, it's, it's, that's a good thing because it's, it's all about, you know, um, anticipation. Brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. In that context, then, tell us the story of the hostel who initially had a lot of negative connotations because hostels are known to be quite, I don't know, unsanitary and mm. dreary places. How did you turn around that unlucky association into something that became lucky? Yeah, so that, that's exactly right. The, the hostel, the first thing that uh, happens if you Google hostels is the film franchise pops up, which is all about you know bloody murders and uh, <laughs> in this horrendous hostel. So that's not that's not exactly a great thing if you've got a brand called Hostel World, no, um, which is uh, the the client that we were working with. Sure. So again, though, we decided to sort of tackle that on its head, um, really. So we got a succession of unlikely guests, people you wouldn't expect to go to hostels to go to hostel and then talk about their concerns, but also have those concerns overcome. And the one I think was the most powerful was we got Charlie Sheen to visit our hostels. And then we created sort of clickbait, um, you know, the sort of thing that you might get, the salacious sort of thing you might get on social media. Right. Uh, where you see messages about how terrible Charlie Sheen is and, you know, he's done lots of very outrageous things in his life. Yeah. And so it would the, the clickbait might have a headline like um, Charlie Sheen beats youth with bat. Um, but when you uh, clicked through, you would find that all he was doing was um, beating a kid at um, table tennis. Table tennis. Yeah. yeah. And the idea was that, you know, you know, they're much nicer than you think because Charlie Sheen's been on a bit of a journey as well. He's, you know, gone from being this bad boy. He's gone straight and sober and all the rest of it. And we had, we created lots of, lots of these. There was things like um, Charlie Sheen cooks up in hostel, which sounded like he was back on the drugs, but it just turned out <laughs> he was just making some spag ball for his friends. Um, or Charlie, Charlie Sheen sleeps with seven people in hostel and it was just that like they were in a, a, in a dormitory together right. so that that's kind of acknowledging we are prejudice and stereotypes we think that hostels are a bit grotty and we think that charlie sheen is a bit dodgy yeah but actually both of them are nicer than you think and it went down really well it was the i think it was youtube's most effective uh, campaign of the year amazing takes a brave client to go along with that you know with all of the associations around Charlie Sheen that could potentially have gone another way you know because there are brands that don't want to be associated with anyone that has you know that sort of reputation really but how much of turning your bad luck into good luck is down to bravery and the courage of a of a brand leader yeah it's a it's a funny um thing you know, when we say bravery, I mean, obviously, in the, in the grand scale of life, and especially after the last year, I always kind of feel like it's a bit funny for us to talk about being brave, because like, what are we actually really doing? It's not usually pretty modest uh, compared to the really brave people out there. Sure. But within that context, I think you need someone 
who is has got good judgment, who realizes that actually the really brave thing or the really reckless thing to do is to just do the same as everyone else. I mean, I always find that that's, that's the really crazy thing. If you don't play to your strengths and if you don't you know, use creativity, that just seems really foolhardy and, and reckless. So really quite often what we're doing is you know, encouraging people to do something that just makes sound business sense. It's not, it's not all that brave at all. And actually, I, when, when you sort of ask someone to do something brave, I feel like it often has the opposite effect. That scares people because they, mm. they think that you're suggesting that they do something really mad and crazy. But actually what we're doing is, right. you know, we, we've thought this through. We're, even if a lot of our work is fun or sort of spirited, we've, it's a, you know, we take their business really seriously. So we are only mm. suggesting this because we think it's going to work rather than because we want you to be brave or cool or, you know, uh, reckless for the sake of it. Yeah. There's so many questions that I have for you. I don't think we're going to get through it in the time that we have here. I've got a question. I want to talk a little bit about the value of a name and the fact that a lot of brands look at their name or their brand name as something that's holding them back or, you know, they're not happy with. We're going through a rebranding process at the moment, actually. So it'd be useful to have this discussion with you. <laughs> but how much emphasis should we place on the name? Should we, you know, there are all of these theories that the brand name should be something associated with the category and it needs to be short and it needs to be, you know, something that rolls off the tongue and one syllable. Some people place a huge amount of importance on the name and other people said it doesn't really mean any it doesn't matter at all where do you sit on the whole brand name thing and how do brands turn a perception of a negative name into a great name yeah i mean i i think the really important thing to remember is that the product makes the name uh rather than the other way around if you've got an amazing product or a great service or um you know great idea then um frankly, you can probably call it just about whatever you like, because people will then come to see that name as being brilliant, because it'll be associated with something phenomenal. You know, you know, is, is Apple the best name in the world? You know, in some ways, it's a pretty stupid name for, you know, phones and, you know, uh, mm. high tech equipment. Um, but of course, we think it's super cool because of all the amazing products that they've created over the years. Mm. And actually, you can sort of see the opposite being true as well. You know, if you look at you can look at couples of companies who so are things like Facebook and MySpace. I mean, MySpace is a miles better name for a social media platform than Facebook. Mm. Um, but of course, Facebook had a much better product. So we now sort of um, look at that as, you know, as being a huge success story and MySpace um, not mm. being so much. So I, I, my advice would always be don't get despondent about your name if you don't, you know, don't have the perfect name. But sometimes the answer is is in the name you know sometimes you can you can have uh, a little bit of luck that you've you've become so over familiar with your name or you maybe don't like your name that you can forget that there might be a nice little secret in there i remember once we were sort of looking at um we were working the co-op and we were spending ages generating sort of trying to find a slogan to describe all the amazing things the co-op do because they're sort of you know food company funerals company uh, they'd sell insurance they've got academies they do all sorts of things and we were we we were getting dozens of very bad slogans right now, and then, and then somebody in the room said, "God, the you know the clues in the name, you know, thinking out loud." They said, um, "The clues in the name is the co-op. They're cooperative. It's it's what we do." Mm. 
And, and then we all sort of looked at each other and went, oh, hold on a second. What did you say there? And they said, it, it's what we do. And that, that's it. It's what we do is the is this amazing sort of collective description of what the co-op do together, all of us. Uh, and it's about cooperation. It's what we do. Mm. And, and now, you know, now that line, it's what we do is on every co-op and every employee's jacket and every lorry and every packet and all the rest of it. Um, and that just came out of the name. Sometimes the answer is hiding in the name. Let's talk a little bit about using your old roots to your advantage. In 2008, the Hovis CEO came to you guys with an existential crisis. Either save the Hovis brand or they will probably die. They were under a lot of commercial pressure at the time. Your solution was to rework the classic ad of as good today as it's always been. Even though you were told to really stay very far away from those old roots and, and, and that classic sort of advertising, why did you ignore that advice and what did you guys do instead? So that, again, this is a classic example. History is something that a lot of companies don't appreciate how lucky they are that they've got an amazing brand heritage because they worry that if you talk about history, it will make them feel old fashioned. And that's where Hovis were. They were seen as a very old fashioned brand because of that boy in the bike ad uh, and various other things. And so, yeah, the advice was to stay right away from that and do something really modern and bring the brand up to date. And, we sort of thought, well, that's a bit of a shame, really, that this heritage is so fascinating. You know, this brand's been around for 120 years and has done all sorts of things for helping the war effort. You know, they paid for Spitfires. They had um, been present um, in people's lives for all these decades. And we kind of thought, surely we can build on that history, but, you know, bring the brand up to date as well and do both things. And so luckily we had a very, you know, uh, understanding chief marketing officer who said yeah that sounds interesting do whatever it takes to get us out of this trouble and so we we sort of um it was only very loosely inspired so we didn't really sort of um copy it at all we we took inspiration from that ad so we we did two things first of all we found the line which was it's as good for you today as it's always been so that was the original line from that ad mm. and we just snipped out a couple of words um, which was the for you bit. So we we shortened it to as good today as it's always been, which it was a bit shorter, but also meant that it was less about health um, and was just a, a more of a general statement because they wanted to talk about a whole bunch of other things, not just health. So as good today as, as it's always been. And then we, we, di- we did another ad with a boy in it. So that kind of had a little echo of what they were famous for. But our boy ran through history. Mm. So he didn't just go up a street with a bike. He ran through all the different things in history with a loaf of bread under his arm from a grocer in Victorian times all the way through the minor strikes, the, the war, you know, uh, mass immigration, you know, uh, the Jubilee and, and all sorts of other um, good and bad things in British history. And then he, he turns up in... Um, you know, his mum's house puts a loaf of bread on the table and she says, are you back yet? And, you know, that that was... Made me want to cry. It was a real, yeah, it was a real tearjerker, actually. And it, it launched just as Britain went into a recession in the 2008 crash. So people were really yearning for a bit of, you know, stability. And, sure. Uh, you know, the British public voted it the biggest uh, or the best uh, favourite advertising campaign of the decade. Amazing. Um, and it generated about 90 million quids worth of extra profits. So, I mean, that that's the power of history if you can get it to work um, for you. Speaking about one of the most recognised adverts and well-regarded adverts in history, 
you created Lucky Generals created Amazon's Super Bowl ad recently, which Americans voted as their favorite ad, mm-hmm. which I think is the first time that a British agency has been has received that accolade. Um, I think over fifty million people watched the ad. Uh, it's a hilarious ad, you know, really super fascinating. And I think it was the most watched advert on YouTube that year. Very hilarious advert. Talk us through how that idea went from initial idea to inception. So uh, this is a good example of serendipity, you know, when you just stumble on something and it's something we're probably all missing a little bit at this moment because we're doing lots of Zoom calls and um, perhaps not always having those nice corridor conversations that can lead to something. But in this case, it was our one of our, you know, well, our creative partner, my creative partner, Danny, was chatting to one of the other guys in the team who's not a creative per se. He's a guy called Nick, who's our operations um, guy. And they were just chatting generally about this brief and Nick kind of semi joked, wouldn't it be funny if Alexa lost her voice? What would what would we do if Alexa lost her voice? And then they looked at each other and said, oh, God, that's actually quite an interesting idea. And from from that idea, Danny started thinking about the Little Mermaid, which is the, you know, the um, Disney story, the Hans Christian Andersen story of the, the mermaid that loses her voice. Sure. Um, and they started thinking, oh, this, this could be really interesting. What would happen? And he shared it with the client. And and again, he didn't do a huge, big sort of formal set piece presentation. He just showed him a picture of the Little Mermaid. And this um, client of ours, Simon Morris, got it immediately from that. Thought, oh, that could be really interesting. So again, quite a brave thing, you know, to use that word again, um, for the client to um, realize that... Um, you know, uh, acknowledging, uh, you know, something going wrong with your product. I mean, that's kind of, you know, showing Alexa not working mm. could be a really powerful way to show how brilliant Alexa is. And of course, that's how it works. So the, the idea, you know, starts off by with uh, somebody running in to tell Jeff Bezos that Alexa's losing her voice and she's coughing. Mm. And then the assistant kind of says, I think we've got a plan to deal with it. Um, and he says, are you sure this is going to work? And they sort of say, yep. Well, uh, we, we can tell that they're not sure at all. Don't sound sure. No. Uh, and then they, right. they, they gave out um, Alexa headsets to all these, you know, great celebs who make a right mess of, um, and are nowhere near as good as uh, dealing with things as Alexa would be. And unfortunately, Alexa uh, gets her voice back just at the end of the ad and uh, is able to take it from there. But we see lots of, we see lots of product. We see the product being used. We, mm. and, and we are reminded Again, uh, this is a big company, but it's a, a big company that can laugh at itself. And um, yeah, that was the first time a British company had ever made the Super Bowl winning ad, which is a huge deal over there. Amazing, amazing. You had some heavy hitters in that ad. Uh, Anthony Hopkins, Cardi B, yeah. uh, Jeff Bezos himself appeared in the ad, which is hilarious to see. What was he like to work with? And yeah, tell us a little bit more about sort of working with Jeff. Jeff was uh, great because, of course, the whole thing was really sending him up um, and certainly sending his company up. Um, so, again, it was uh, it, it was sort of a, a nice sort of uh, gesture of self-deprecation, you know, one of the most famous people on the planet. And, uh, yeah, he turned out to be a pretty good actor, I think. He turned in a, yeah, a pretty yeah, good performance. I was surprised, yeah. yeah. Um, uh, which doesn't always happen. Sometimes when you put people like that in an ad, it can be yeah, uh, a bit wooden. Yeah, yeah, but a bit he's uh, he managed to sort of uh, do a really good performance, and 
And th- he's actually quite good at laughing him, at himself, actually. He's got a really good sense of humour, Jeff. Yeah, I, I think, uh, and I think, again, people appreciated that, you know, we, we launched it um, just with, as a teaser um, earlier that week. We, I mean, the first thing we did was we worked with the engineers at Amazon to do an Easter egg, you know, in the product. So that if you asked Alexa who was going to win the Super Bowl, she would cough and okay. um you would and then she would sort of say um you know i can't answer that and it would yeah. it would that got a lot of people talking about a million people interacted with that easter egg amazing um so that got a lot of social coverage and then we did a teaser of jeff wondering what was going wrong which again was really powerful and got a lot of people talking about well what's what are they going to do for the super bowl they knew we were up to something and uh mm. yeah and, and then we sort of uh, sent out these handsets on our headsets on social media and you know they did the unboxing videos and people at cardi b or rebel wilson sort of um taking these strange apparatus out of the boxes so what what mm. we find is that every you, you you don't just make a tele ad anymore you're you're even if you are putting a i mean there was a big television ad at the heart of this but it's also about the PR, the social, um, yeah. the content, the stunts. Um, how can you get people talking about it? So by the time the um, Super Bowl ad actually aired, you know, tens of millions of people had seen it online or seen parts of it um, online already or heard about it or read about it um, uh, in the papers. Interesting. So speaking about channels then, you say, quote, Convention says paid and earned media are the most exciting ways to promote your brand. Luck says owned media first. Explain. Um, I think if you've got your own channels, like if you've got your own packaging or a shop window or social channels or whatever, like that is absolute gold dust. And again, we sort of, we don't really think about them as media because we're sort of excited about, you know, we're very familiar with them and we're probably excited about doing our shiny, you know, um, above the line um, advertising campaign, but sure. but sometimes the, something as simple as a pack can be really exciting. You know, think about what Oatly have done with their packaging. I mean, they're more or less like billboards, their packs, um, and that's a really valuable piece of uh, media real estate for them to be. So you don't have to just think it as a, a place to put in, you know, lists of ingredients. You can do something much more exciting with that. So let's talk a little bit about biomimicry. You write a lot in the book around what brands can learn from nature. What is biomimicry and how can nature be the source of inspiration for marketers? So biomimicry is a fancy name for learning from nature. Um, And there's lots of products have been influenced by this. So one I write about in the book is Velcro, which began life when a guy was walking his dog and the dog was covered in burrs, you know, those kind of prickly seeds. And when he had a little look at them under a microscope, because this guy was a, a scientist, he could see that the seeds had these kind of like loops uh, and hooks um, that could fasten, you know, uh, onto, you know, things like birds' feathers and stuff like that. And um, he thought, okay, that's really interesting. That could be applied to clothing. And after, you know, years and years of experimenting with it, he um, modeled something that came pretty close to that plant seed. Um, And, you know, that's obviously a household name now. And what scientists are finding increasingly is that rather than just let that happen by chance, like happen there, you can actually, you know, formally make that part of your process. Um, because if you think about it, um, Mother Nature has spent billions of years perfecting 
um, some of these products, if you like. Mm. Um, and, you know, evolution is, you know, it's, a, it's an amazing sort of test market. So, um, you know, one of the best ways of uh, increasing your luck is to see if there's an analogy in nature. You know, people have designed trains in Japan that have been modeled on the, the beak of a kingfisher, you know, the aerodynamics, mm. you know, so rather than reinventing the wheel, maybe go to Mother Nature and see if, uh, you know, the great outdoors has honed something um, already that you could just, you know, basically borrow. Definitely. Couldn't, couldn't agree more. I've got a million more questions mm. to ask you, but we're running out of time. I'm going to ask you a couple more and then we're going to jump into our favorite questions that we ask all of our guests Tell us a little bit about the initiative that you set up recently called Lucky Bastards <laughs> or Lucky Bastards yeah. to tackle online hate. I absolutely love oh, it. Thank you. Tell us the story. Well, it was, um, you know, probably like a lot of us, um, I was sitting, looking at my phone and just getting really annoyed one day about how much sort of hate and sort of um, bigotry and so on there was. And then I thought, well, I, actually, I, you know, I work in the media. I'm kind of part of this world I should probably do something about it rather than just get cross about it and then I thought rather than what my natural instinct was get back straight into the people <laughs> that were giving all the hate and sort of give them a piece of my mind I thought maybe there's maybe there's something more interesting in wrong-footing them with a really nice reply so I sort yeah. of came up with this idea called Lucky Bastards and it's sort of like a game show um, with a nice big smiley logo and when we uh, found someone talking about you know um you know, gay bastards, I would send them a little note saying, thank you for playing Lucky Bastards. <laughs> you know, well done. Um, we've, you know, turned your horrible message uh, into a donation to Stonewall. So we'd match the, um, you know, the the cause yeah. with the uh, with the charity that we would give it to. Um, you know, thank you. Hope you appreciate it. And then <laughs> we put a big kiss on the end of each one, which really sort of threw people because I think they didn't quite know how to respond. Um, and of course, or infuriated, them. or infuriated them. That's right. And you know, we were just relentlessly jolly and happy and well done. Yeah. And so, if if someone sort of was saying that Muslim bastards had set fire to um, Notre Dame, which of course they didn't do. Yeah. Um, we would say, well, that's not true, but thanks for playing Lucky Bastards. We're going to turn your um, hateful comment into £10 to your local mosque because that was actually, um, you know, a victim of an arson attack recently. Congratulations. And then you'd get lots of lovely um, messages from the charities and uh, you'd bamboozle these kind of um, horrible you know, bigots. And, you know, it's not going to solve that problem, but it it's... I guess it just makes the world a slightly better place in a tiny little way. Just talking about, just staying on your point around sort of giving back to the industry or, or helping the industry and being in a position now where you can do that. I Is it true that all of your proceeds of the book or part of the process of the book are going to underprivileged people to get into the advertising industry and creative industries? That yeah. Am I misquoting no, you that, there? No, that's, that's exactly right. All the royalties... Um, so, which is basically the money that I would make out of it. So I'm not making a penny out of this and the agency is not making a penny out of this. Um, all the royalties are going to an organisation called Commercial Break, um, which is a really good cause that helps yeah, working class kids get a lucky break into the industry. Because I sort of like the idea of, you know, I've, I have been lucky in my career. The book is about luck. Um, why not share some of that luck with other people? Because, mm. you know, other people have got a much tougher time of it than I have. So... And, you know, hopefully it's, you know, it's, uh, went into number one spot in the marketing list of you know books on Amazon. Has it? So hopefully it's, you wow. know, drumming up a bit of support and money for uh, that cause and doing a good, good shot for them. 
you haven't gamed the system with your, your pal <laughs> Jeff, have you? Sadly, uh, that does not count no. for anything. You, you, no. you didn't collude that's, with Mr. Bezos. That's an amazing, uh, amazing thought. That if uh, if I'd thought about it, no, I think they are strictly, <laughs> um, you know, business-like with all those sort of things. Okay, sure. <laughs> so, staying on the topic of inclusivity and sort of getting more diverse views and backgrounds into the industry, you wrote, "quote." When coming up with new ideas, we can't help building in the previous concepts. So especially ones which come to mind more easily. And I think there's a term in like behavioral science about that. What does that mean to marketers who want to create a deeper impact in our world? And what does that mean in terms of the importance that diversity and inclusion brings to creative businesses and to the industry as a whole? So, um, I mean, obviously, lots of businesses talking about this quite rightly um, right now, and in, usually from an ethical point of view, because it, it is just the right thing to do, isn't it, to have a diverse business. But on top of that, there is there's just a really strong practical commercial reason or creative reason, which is you're going to come up with much better ideas. This is how you can mm. deliberately sort of stack the odds in your favor and, you know, increase your chances of a happy accident. If you have lots of different people from lots of different backgrounds, then they'll come up with different stuff um, or they might bounce ideas off each other from different backgrounds that will make new you know, collisions of ideas that haven't been seen before. Mm. Whereas if you just have everybody from the same background, you're going to get the same old stuff that, that, that you know, that particular culture's created um, over many years. So mm. I, I find, you know, as a business owner, um, if, if somebody came to me and sort of said, well, I've got a surefire way that you can massively increase the effectiveness of your um, work, I'd be all ears. So um, I think on top of the ethical argument, I think this is like an amazing, exciting opportunity. We should see diversity as an opportunity rather than as it's sometimes seen, which is a bit of a problem and a hassle and a thing that we've got to solve. Mm. If there was one idea that you want people to take away from the book, what would it be? I would say that, and I'm going to quote uh, that other great marketing textbook, um, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, <laughs> we're all a great deal luckier than we think. You know, luck is a, a construct that we create for ourselves and we've all got some good strengths or things that we can build on. And if we don't, if we've got weaknesses, we can turn them into strengths too. So uh, we're all lucky. Mm. Um, we just have to be better at appreciating it would be the message of the book. And you actually write in the book that just by thinking that you're lucky or believing that you're lucky, you do actually become luckier. Yeah. So there's a mindset thing to luck. Talk about that. Definitely. If you feel lucky, you walk into the room thinking you're going to do it. And, you know, it's like it's like, you know, dating, you know, for instance, if you're feeling on top form and, you know, then you're probably going to appear more charismatic and therefore right. be more attractive and that will make you succeed. Right. And then, you, you know, you'll, you'll look back and you think, oh, yeah, I, I was lucky there. So, mm. And there have been lots of experiments with this. You know, people have done experiments with footballers taking penalties. Um, and if they are allowed to do their little ritual, for instance, um, you know, uh, maybe they want to bless themselves or turn around, touch their nose, touch or, their nose or whatever. Touch the ground, yeah. yeah. If, if they do that, then they are actually more likely to score. Um, not because the laws of physics are changed. I mean, obviously that would be ridiculous, but just because it puts them in the right vibe, you know, they fe mm. they're feeling lucky. And because they're feeling lucky, then they do turn out to be lucky. And so then mm. the next time they kind of think, right, I must touch my nose again. 
And maybe a little bit of that, not to get too meta, but maybe the laws of physics have slightly yeah. changed. You know, look, there are <laughs> energies and patterns that we don't, you know, science hasn't totally understood yet. Maybe there is something to do with connecting the, your belief and the way that you think to actually things that change and transpire in the real world. Who knows? Without yeah. getting too deep into into science, but um, but totally. Let's get into everyone's favorite question. I've thoroughly enjoyed that conversation. Oh, and thanks, me too. I'm 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 seventy percent through the book. I haven't finished it yet, but I'm definitely going to over the next couple of days. Highly recommend everyone pick up a copy. It's absolutely fascinating, fascinating book. Let's get into everyone's favorite questions now. These mm-hmm. are the questions that I ask all of my guests. So. Super excited to ask you some of them as well. Who is the person behind the brand sort of questions? First one, tell us about a time when you failed and what you learned from the experience. Oh, wow. Um, Well, professionally, I guess we failed when we did, uh, I mentioned it earlier, we did a merger. We we merged an agency called MCBD with an agency called DARE and it made great sense on paper. It looked absolutely fantastic. Um, But I didn't like, it became quite corporate and boring and not a lot of fun. And I suppose what I learned from that was, and this is why we set up Lucky Generals, is that, you know, life's too short to work away at something that you feel that you should be doing. You know, it needs, you need to have fun and enjoyment. And um, that reminded us, you know, the three of us, how much we loved working with each other without those kind of corporate fetters um, on. Mm. So we broke free and uh, did our own thing. It was really useful in the end, actually. It was really, really focused our minds on what we did want to do. So sometimes you have to take a little stumble like that to pick yourself back up. Turning unlucky events into lucky events. Yeah. It just keeps repeating itself. Mm. Tell us about some of your early mentors. Um, Who influenced the way that you think about creativity, the way you think about building brands, the way you think about influence, aside from Alexander McCall Smith, Mm -hmm. who was amazing to have at such an early age. Tell us about some of your other mentors um there was uh somebody well maybe my first mentor in the agency world was a lady called mia kennedy she's absolutely fantastic brilliant planner and also just incredibly kind and generous with her time when i was first starting out and i'll never forget that i think you know the if, if you've got some wisdom to pass on to new people who you know have no connection with advertising and might be sort of nervous or lacking confidence or not not really knowing the ropes and if you can show them that kindness that's a that's a brilliant thing to be able to do it really set me off on a good path so a huge shout out to her mia kennedy yeah so any anyone else you want to mention uh well i could give i can and then you know the mostly have been women actually i've got to say i've always i've had always had great women bosses but there's a lady called mt rainey who is a, a fellow scott and um, she had a great agency called Rainey Kelly, mm. Campbell Rolf, and she was she was absolutely amazing, sort of uh, inspirational, different style of planning from Mia, you know, because I think you should have different influences, you know. Um, I, I so after four or five years working with Mia, I then joined this other agency, and she she was just very very passionate, and you know had a quite an unusual style of of creative strategy, which. Uh, which I, I really enjoyed, and it was just it was just great watching her in action. It was uh, you just sometimes you pick up a lot of mm. off somebody just by watching them do it. And again, so you know, very generous with her sort of time, and I, you know, I've kept up with both of them ever uh, ever since. 
Speaking of amazing planners and, and strategists, I believe Loz Horner is the person at Lucky Generals behind the Amazon Super Bowl ad. Am I right in saying that? Yeah, he's he's behind lots of our um, great stuff, including the um, including the Super Bowl spot. He's amazing. He's absolutely an extraordinary planner. Tell us what makes an amazing planner. I think it's being creative in the broader sense. He's a very you know Loz is a really interesting creative. Uh, thinker that can switch from some really heavy duty number crunching to a discussion about Love Island um, <laughs> or as you do something yes. yeah he's just very eclectic in his interests he's interested in everything and he's in you know in particular in people I think that's what it really is it's an interest in the bizarre illogical behaviors yeah. of human beings and yeah. what makes us all tick and that's for a good planner that's never boring yeah. um, and Loz is always interested in all of those kind of strange little quirks Definitely. We are a weird, odd species, yeah. aren't we? We're yeah. so weird. Yeah, we're not predictable. Yeah. If you take a step back and look at why human beings do what we do, it's just so yeah. odd. It's fascinating. It is fascinating. Tell us about some of your favourite books, other than uh, Go Luck Yourself. What are, what books have been most instrumental in the way that you think about uh, media, creativity, building brands, agencies? What books do you go back to time and time again? Yeah. Um, well, do you know, one of the things, um, and this, it's funny for me to be saying this because I've got a, a, a sort of, in some ways, a business book, is I try to read a lot of things that aren't business books. I've just, just read Where the Crawdads Sing, which is an amazing book by a lady called Delia Owens, set in the sort of deep south. So it's, it's got literally nothing to do with advertising, but I just feel like it's it's good to surround yourself with interesting ideas and fiction and non-fiction sure. beyond your day job. And then if, if I do think about the day job, then I, I try to really select, you know, a few really amazing and influential reads. So one thing that was very sort of influential in my life was uh, Eating the Big Fish by a guy called yes. Adam Morgan, which amazing. is like a really sort of, you know, oh, one of the, challenger the brands. all-time sort of greats. Yeah, and, yeah. And introduced the idea of challenger brands. I mean, that's absolutely phenomenal. I love all his stuff, really. He did a great book as well about about luck in, in some ways, actually. What was it called? Um, is it A Beautiful Constraint? A Beautiful Constraint. Yeah. yeah, so I talk about that in, in my book. Um, it, it, that was very focused on the idea of, you know, sometimes a limit, you know, or a constraint can be a lucky thing. You know, sometimes yeah. creativity actually thrives when you have a, have a constraint place in it. So, sure. so yeah, I, I, I absolutely love all his stuff. Um, there's a guy called Richard Shotton, who uh, wrote something uh, called the Choice Factory? Okay, um, is that like behavioral? It behavior, behavioral economics, which is like really interesting. Uh, I really recommend that. Uh, and then at the moment, there's a book called Brand Splaining. Okay, I think it's by Jane Cunningham. It's about how brands are still using sort of sexist sort of constructs in their marketing, even even sometimes un- unintentionally and unwittingly. Interesting. Like what? Um, just in the way that they, you know, we we sort of set up, you know, I guess how how we present different stereotypes of what men and women can do, uh, or mm. how we sort of we encourage children to behave in different ways. I guess from a very early age, you know, we say these this stuff is for boys and this stuff okay. is for girls, uh, where there's no real logic to it. It's sure. just that that's the way that we've also been brought up. So I think that's been interesting. Mm. Amazon Prime or Netflix? What are you watching or streaming that's good? Or do you have to watch Amazon Prime now because of the relationship? <laughs> uh, 
We, I certainly, I certainly must uh, say that um, you know I'm I'm all all about Amazon, uh, but of course I do also watch Netflix as well, just to keep an eye on the competition. Um, <laughs> of course, market yeah. research, and you know, and it's good to be sort of in touch with all things. I mean, I, I I'm like everybody. I like especially over the last year, I've been binge watching, you know, all the way through things like Shit's Creek, uh, which is you know fantastic, mm. mm-hmm. um, Succession. You know, um, absolutely great. So brilliant! One of the best things on TV. It's so good. I think the next series is coming soon. I can't wait for that to happen. Yeah, is it? That's exciting. Yeah. So, yeah, uh, yeah I think television's never been better, has it? You know, this the serialization of shows is is fantastic right now. This is the golden age of TV. To to me, I mean, I I can't remember a time. In history, I say in history as if I'm that old, but I can't remember a time in recent history where TV has been as good on so many different platforms. I mean, yeah. Amazon, Disney Plus, BBC, BritBox, you know, go down the list. You've got all these great, you know, OTT platforms these days. And terrestrial TV is also great yeah. in a different way. Um, yeah, I don't know if it's because I'm getting older or whatever, but I'm just enjoying just sitting down and Quite watching right, all yeah. TV. Yeah. Okay. Last couple of questions and I'll let you go. In the last three to five years, what ideas, behaviors, or habits have you added or removed from your life that have improved your outcomes? Oh, wow. Um, I know, right? That's a, that's a deep one. I mean, I, uh, I guess it's perhaps being, trying to be more mindful, you know, that, and maybe that's again, a backdrop to the book is perhaps one of the reasons why I ended up writing it is, as an individual, I feel I feel like it's helpful to, you know, we we all we all move so quickly these days that sometimes we don't stop to just appreciate what we're doing or to appreciate how lucky we are, and you know I, I think we should enjoy the journey as we go along. So what I've tried to do is just sometimes set a little bit of time aside in the day and just sort of remind myself how you know blessed and lucky I've been and good things that are going on even if it's a really really terrible day and it's all seems to be going wrong there's probably something that you've still got you know you can be thankful for your family or for another part of your life that's not to do with business or whatever um and I I feel that's a that's a nice thing that I I might have been a bit cynical about a few years ago but I found actually quite a helpful thing tell us something we don't know about Andy Nairn oh my god um let me think. Um, I tell you what, I come from a very, I come from a, a place called a tiny, tiny little place uh, called Duns, and it is the place that's only, only claim to fame, is that it's where the word dunce comes from. So our only claim to fame is that we're associated with idiots. So it's it's not a great, <laughs> uh, it's not a great claim to fame, but it is it is one. Um, it's it's actually from an old story. There's basically a very long story of this, but in in brief, it was a philosopher uh, who came from our town back in the day, you know, medieval times. Right. And he was, he was, he was got in a huge big debate. The whole of like Christian thinking was split into this guy who's called John Dunce Scotus and St. Thomas Aquinas. And St. Thomas Aquinas won this big sort of debate. So all his followers then called people who followed the other guy Dunces. Um, oh. And it's just stuck for hundreds of years here, Dunce. And the, ta- the, the town actually changed its name about a hundred years ago from Dunce to Duns, so it just took the e off the the um, okay the the name. 
um, because we're getting because fed up of just being yeah bad press. The only thing that we're famous for is is, is idiots. <laughs> so. No, but the context, the story is fascinating. Yeah. Why that you know why that came to be. Yeah argument with St. Thomas Aquinas. I mean, yeah, yeah su- super, super fascinating. Yeah. I think you need to provide the context. Um, yeah. I think that helps to explain. Yeah, he was, he was a very clever person. And that's actually another sort of person who's turned his luck around, you know, although hundreds of years after his death, but he's, he's now, philosophers have now like really appreciated this guy and realized that he was really smart after all. Yeah. And, uh, uh, you know, he's, uh, his writing has now been sort of, um, uh, sort of, put on the same sort of pedestal so about 800 years too late but never mind (laughs) yeah yeah last couple of questions what advice would you give to a young person or millennial who wants to start her career in a creative agency just to be interested in all sorts of things and not become an ad person when you join an industry like advertising, which is quite intense and people talk about ads all the time you just have to remind yourself that other people in the real world don't uh, uh, don't think about that. So it's why I've tried to make the book, for instance, full of stuff from other fields like sport or music or religion or you know um, nature and stuff like that. Because I think we don't we shouldn't we shouldn't be too focused on this kind of very funny little industry that we all work in. Mm. And my final question, Andy, what is it you know about the world of advertising and creativity today that you wish you knew at, right at the beginning of your career? Oh, another tricky one. I think it's about, um, uh, this is going to be ironic because I've spent this whole session talking, but I think I now learned the power of listening. Like when you first start out, you think, uh, you know, and lots of people tell you, you've got to make an impression, you've got to say something, you've got to find your voice, you know, all that stuff, and which is mm. sort of important in some ways. But what nobody tells you is how important listening is and and actually, the best people I've worked with are brilliant listeners. Um, you know, lots of the people I've mentioned today are just really good at listening. And then uh, and they're not always the loudest people in the room. So, yeah, that would be my advice to, again, to young people is don't worry too much about not being the noisiest person. Because over over time, you'll find that the best listeners kind of rise to the top, not just the, the biggest shouters. Great place to end. Absolutely love it. Andy, thank you so much for doing this. Thank you. Thank you very much. I really appreciate it. And it's been, it's been fun. We have been speaking with Andy Nairn. He is currently the founding partner at Lucky Generals. If you enjoyed this conversation, then head over to Apple Podcasts where you can listen to over 140 such conversations we've had now with world-class leaders in creativity, advertising, brand building. Just go down the list. Thank you for your feedback and suggestions on LinkedIn and email write to me at nathan at agencydealmasters.com. We would be unable to do this show without our very own dealmasters. Tyler Baller is our editor. Christoph Boaszczyk is our executive producer. I'm Nathan Alibaba. You've been listening to Agency Dealmasters. Dealmasters.